If you have your Bibles, let's go over to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. We have been studying the Gospel of Luke uh, on Sunday mornings, and um, we've been in the upper room with Jesus Christ. And so we're going to continue to look at that in the service this morning. So Luke, chapter 22, in your Bibles. I read a few moments ago a passage of Scripture from Israel's hymn book, Psalm 119, and it was a passage that emphasizes that things don't change. God's truth is forever settled, both in heaven and on earth. Things that pertain to God are certain and unchangeable. That is a source of great confidence. But the reality is, in humanity, things do change. But the question is, how do you handle change in your life? You know, for some, change is a way of life. I think of people who have served our country in the military, and they'll get orders every few years, uh, and they'll have to pack up and, and move to another state or another part of the world even, another city, another home, unpack and, and live for just a, a short uh, few years and then get orders to up and, and again, huge changes in life. And change becomes a way of life for them. They become accustomed to change. That wasn't my situation growing up. Uh, I didn't... Um, I didn't grow up in a family in which there was a lot of change, whereas today people buy and sell homes, they get a job, they work for a few years, build a resume, change jobs. I lived in the same house until I went to college. My dad worked the same job all of my life until the Lord took him home. We only changed churches one time in my entire life before I went to college, and that was after my mom got saved and our uh, Mom and Dad wanted to be in a church that preached the gospel instead of the liberal church that we were in. Uh, and so uh, change really hasn't been a way of life for me, uh, but it is for a lot of people. In reality, even those like myself who have not grown up accustomed to change, we find that sometimes God orchestrates changes in our lives, in the world around us, in our relationship with people. God orchestrates changes that can result in a lack of stability. God orchestrates changes that we have to learn how to conduct, uh, how to relate to. Uh, God orchestrates change that we have to embrace. And uh, we have to embrace that with a passion to move forward with God into uncharted territory. And so the message this morning, the bottom line up front, or what we call the bluff, is uh, get ready for change. Change is coming. Get ready for change. That's the message that Jesus Christ delivered to his apostles in the upper room uh, just hours before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. As I mentioned, we have been meeting with Jesus and his 12 apostles in the upper room. We've learned a lot. It's, uh, they're just hours away from Jesus' arrest uh, in the middle of the night and then his execution the next day. And Jesus is spending this last night with his 12 apostles. We've learned that his 12 apostles were not spiritual giants. They were not ready to tackle the world and evangelize the world. They had some real deep-seated problems. And, uh, and Jesus Christ uh, dealt with some of those things in the upper room. Uh, that kind of gives me encouragement because these 12 apostles were the, uh, they were the result of Jesus' personal ministry of three years. And these 12 apostles are the ones in whose hands God is going to place the responsibility to evangelize the world. And I think if Jesus Christ trusted these guys, then certainly he can use me to do something for his namesake as well. So I'm encouraged by the reality that these apostles had a lot of growth room yet in their lives when Jesus Christ thrust them out in the enterprise of evangelizing the world. We learned that Peter, as the leader, was about to enter into the most severe trial of his entire life, and he's going to mess up royally. And Jesus Christ talked to Peter about that. We saw Jesus reach out to help Peter while Satan was hindering Peter. And we learned a great lesson about our confidence in Jesus Christ to help us when Satan is trying to hinder us in our life. Well, the next topic that arose in the discussion there 
in the upper room that is recorded by Luke in his gospel has to do do with a huge change that was about to uh, come into the lives of the apostles. Everything was going to be changing in their relationship to the world around them. Uh, there's going to be a great change regarding how they would face the world and that the world would relate to them. You see, during Jesus' earthly ministry, he took the apostles and they went all over Israel. Uh, we talk about his Galilean ministry, his Samaritan ministry, his Judean ministry, his Korean ministry. These were all geographic locations in Israel where Jesus took his apostles and, and they ministered. He preached, he taught, he performed miracles to prove that he was the Messiah that was promised. And so that had been the, the pattern of their experience. Uh, on two different occasions, Jesus Christ organized his followers and sent them out without him on special uh, um, responsibilities of preaching and teaching and, and uh, extending the work of Jesus Christ. And uh, the, the uh, result of those meetings were powerful. And people received them. There was a, a receptiveness of the world to Jesus Christ. We saw that that had occurred in John the Baptist's ministry. Uh, thousands of people had flocked out into the wilderness and down to the Jordan River uh, to hear John the Baptist preach and to uh, observe the baptisms that were occurring when people repented of their sins and, and trusted the message of the soon-to-appear Messiah. Uh, we know that... In Jesus Christ's ministry, crowds of people came to hear him. And here, in the last week of his ministry in Jerusalem, the number of people was just astronomical, uh, causing the religious leaders of Israel to have great concern. They were beside themselves in what to do with the mass following that Jesus Christ uh, was experiencing. And so the relationship of Jesus and the apostles to the rank-and-file Israelite living throughout the land of Israel was a uh, very positive experience. But that's all going to change tomorrow. And the change that is going to occur, the apostles have to learn how to cope with and deal with in their lives. And that's what Jesus Christ is talking to them about in our text this morning, I want you to watch the the flow of Jesus Christ's progression of thought. You'll see it as you notice the words when, but now, and for. When, but now, and for. Watch for those as we read the text together. So you're in your Bible in Luke chapter 22. Uh, I'm going to begin reading in verse number 35. Listen to what Jesus Christ taught the disciples on this occasion. Verse number 35. And he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, Nothing. Then said he unto them, But now, he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise his script. And he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say unto you, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors. For the things concerning me have an end. And they said, Lord, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it is enough. This is an interesting passage of Scripture that uh, I don't know that I've ever heard preached. I've been preaching for 45 years. I've been a Christian for over 55 years. I, I don't know that I've ever heard anyone preach on this text of Scripture about the script and the purse and the sword, or as the title of the message this morning says, a bag and a sword. And uh, yet, this is a profound passage of Scripture. Three questions. One question for each of the words that I uh, I ask you to notice as we read the Scripture reading. Uh, first question is this. 
What were they used to? What were they used to? Jesus said, when I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lacked ye anything? And they said, nothing. What were they used to in ministry? What were these apostles used to when they went out to do the work and ministry of Jesus Christ? Well, during this earthly ministry, when Jesus took his apostles up and down throughout Israel, they were used to being received well. Now, there are two times, uh, I believe I mentioned, two times that Jesus organized and sent them out without his presence. One of them is recorded in Luke chapter 9, where he took these same 12 men, organized them, and sent them out to teach and to preach. And then, a little later, recorded in Luke 10, Jesus organized 70 men and sent them out, uh, 70 um, uh, followers, and sent them out to be able to do his work. And when they came back, they came back with such excitement. They came back just uh, glorying in what the result of the ministry was. When Jesus sent them out, he gave them specific instruction. He said, don't take your script with you. What's a script? Well, the word script was a, a word that referred to a leather bag that they would carry food in. And so Jesus said, hey, you're not going to need to carry your script. Therefore, you won't need any food. And then he said, and don't take your purse. The purse was a, another small leather bag that they carried their money in, like a wallet or a lady's purse today. Jesus said, don't carry your purse. You won't need any money. He said, don't take an extra pair of shoes. Don't take an extra coat. Because everywhere you go, people are going to welcome you into their homes. Everywhere you go, people are going to bring you in and give you a place to stay, a place to sleep. They're going to feed you. They're going to provide for your needs. They're going to protect you. Everywhere you go, the world around you is going to be very welcoming to you. Such that you don't need food, you don't need money, you don't need extra clothes or shoes. Just go in my name. If someone doesn't receive you into their home, not a problem. Just go on down the street. There'll be someone else that will. Their experience was that everywhere they went, they were well taken care of because of the generosity of the people of Israel and how they related to them. Uh, when they came back from the, when the 70 came back, recorded in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, they were so excited, uh, and they just were telling Jesus, you wouldn't believe what happened. It was such a positive experience. But now, things are about to change. The second question would be, what will they face in the future? Verse number 36 of our text Jesus said, but now, but now, indicating a change, indicating something's going to be different than it used to be. But now, what are they going to face? Everything is about to change in their relationship to the world around them. In the next 24 hours, the events that will unfold will forever change the relationship they will have with Israel. While in the past, the world around them gave them a place to eat, and a place to stay, food to eat, and money for their needs, that's all going to end. And so Jesus Christ said in our text, in verse number 36, But now, if you have a purse, you better take it. Take some money with you. Take your purse with money in it. You're going to need that. He said, likewise, his script. If, if you have a bag to carry food in, you better carry that bag with you, and you better put food. Every time you get some food, you better keep it there. You better provide for yourself because you're not going to be received well in the future. Do you not have a sword? Now, now, now sword... Don't, Don't think, think of a big, big long sword uh, that a soldier would use in a, in a, a combat situation. 
Uh, Jesus Christ is talking about a, a, a long knife. They would use it for a variety of things. They, they would use it to, to chop firewood. They would use it uh, just like kids will carry a pocket knife. You know, you've got, you got to have your pocket knife for whatever comes up, whatever you need to do. Uh, a sword was a very useful instrument that they used for a lot of things. And in addition to all that, it was for self-defense. Um, you know, wild animals, um, a, a, a thief that would jump out and, and try, to just try to kill them. Uh, they needed some equipment for the variety of things that they will need to provide for themselves. They will need food. They will need money. And they will need equipment. Because the world's not going to take care of them anymore. Everything is going to change. Let me just insert uh, the reality that the purpose of the sword was not to be able to wage a campaign, a, a, a war against non-Christ followers. Uh, the, the, they were not going to convert with the sword. They were not going to engage in a, a, uh, a military endeavor. No, that didn't start happening until about 300 years later when a, some apostate parts of Christianity merged together and formed the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, then later the Protestant churches, and then... Uh, Christianizing with the sword became popular. The Crusades, the, uh, the, all of the martyrdom, all of the persecutions where, where powerful political churches engaged in warfare against those who weren't their brand of Christian. Uh, conversion by the sword came hundreds of years later. This is not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about providing your needs, food, money, and the equipment you need to provide your needs because everything's going to change. You know, John, in his uh, gospel, uh, recorded some details about this subject in John chapter number 15. Uh, some additional information that Jesus gave to these apostles in the upper room about the change that was going to occur. Let me read a portion of that from John chapter 15, verse number 18. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know, the world had not hated them before. They weren't used to this. This is something new. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, a servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. If they have kept my sayings, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do to you for my name's sake, because they know not me. They know not him that sent me. Jesus Christ went into, and that's just a portion, it goes on from there. Jesus Christ uh, spent some time in the upper room preparing the disciples for this change that Luke very briefly addresses. This change in the relationship to the world. Now, why was Jesus teaching them in the upper room about this change? In John 16, Jesus said, These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. The word offended speaks of tripping over some offense, that someone does something to you and it causes you to trip and stumble. Jesus said, this change in attitude in the world could make you stumble and trip and ask the question, is it really worth it to follow Christ with all of this persecution I receive, with all of this attitude I receive? Is it really worth it to be a Christ follower? Jesus said, I'm teaching you this in the upper room because everything's going to change tonight. And I don't want you to stumble over the way you're treated and discern that being a Christian is not worth it after all. Jesus went on to say that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. And these things will they do unto you because they have not known the Father nor me. 
the change that is coming is a change that the disciples will experience in the relationship with the world around them. These changes are going to be difficult for the apostles. It's the very heart of that that Peter wrestled with in the middle of the night as he warmed his hand by the enemy's fire and, and concluded, I don't know, I don't know, this, I, I, I don't know about all of this. No, I don't know who Jesus is. They're going to stumble. They're going to have a hard time with the change in attitude from the world the night of Jesus' arrest and from that day forward. And so Jesus is preparing them for these changes. Major changes requiring need for knowledge, a need for controlled expectations, and faithfulness in the part of Christian people when things change around us and the world doesn't appreciate us anymore. We need a knowledge of why these changes come. Jesus told the disciples in the upper room, it's because the world is different than you are. You believe in me, they don't. And because they don't believe in me, they hate me. And because you follow me, they're going to hate you. They're going to ostracize you, kick you out of the synagogues. That was huge. That was life-changing for a Jew to be kicked out of the synagogues. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your, your friends. You're going to lose your family. You're going to be kicked out. And possibly you'll lose your life and be killed. Big, major changes require that we know why they're there to control our expectations of life and to build faithfulness in our being. What will they face? They will face major changes. And then a final question. Why the change? Why the change? Verse number 37 has the third key word in following Jesus' train of thought. He said, he asked them and said unto them, when I sent you, back in the past, when that happened, what was your experience? But now, everything's going to change. And then the word for, F-O-R, it's a word that introduces an explanation, a, a reasoning. We, we can understand why this happened. And so verse number 37, for I, for I say unto you, and here comes the reason that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. What's Jesus talking about? This that is written yet must be accomplished in me. The reality is that Jesus' execution was written beforehand. This is not some strange twist of fate. This is not some unexplained accident. This is not orchestrated by the Jewish leaders or the Roman soldiers. This was orchestrated by God himself. It is written. That is written. This that is written must yet be accomplished. God is behind what's going to happen tomorrow. It was written beforehand that this was going to happen. And that's why this change has to occur. Peter is going to preach in just a few, just a couple, few weeks after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's going to be in Jerusalem. And he's going to preach to the people of Jerusalem that, uh, that uh, screamed out, crucify him, crucify him uh, earlier. And I want to read a couple of verses of what Peter is going to say in his sermon. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter preached, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Let me read that again. 
him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Not the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, not the Roman soldiers, not the Roman leaders in place, not Pilate. Jesus will be executed by the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. Now, that doesn't mean the others didn't have a role in it. That which had been uh, occurred by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, Peter said. Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosened the pains of death, that it was not possible that he should be holden of it. You see, God was the primary cause of Jesus' execution. Man was the intermediate cause of Jesus' execution. God had long before determined that Jesus Christ would be executed, and when he would be executed, and how he would be executed. As a matter of fact, that was determined before God spoke the world into place. For Jesus was called the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world. Before God ever created the world, before God ever created Adam and Eve, God ordained that Jesus would be executed on a particular day, in a particular city, at a particular time. And that time for Jesus and the twelve apostles is tomorrow. Why the big change? I'll tell you why the big change. Because that's the day God determined that Jesus would be executed. Now, where was it written beforehand? It was written beforehand? Well, where was it written beforehand? And this is so exciting. Look at our text in verse number 37. That which is written must yet be accomplished in me. Then notice the next phrase. And he was reckoned among the transgressors. And he was reckoned among the transgressors. What's, where was that written? What, where does that come from? Well, take your Bibles and turn back to Isaiah 53. Jesus Christ is quoting from Isaiah 53, the greatest chapter of the Old Testament. For hundreds of years, Bible scholars have called Isaiah 53 the gospel of the Old Testament. The first gospel that was written. Matthew was the second gospel. Mark was the third gospel. Luke was the fourth gospel. John was the fifth gospel. But the first gospel God wrote is Isaiah chapter 53. And Jesus is quoting that chapter and said in his text that, that this is what was written about me. This has to come to pass in my life. And this is why everything's going to change in your lives tomorrow, men. Isaiah 53 is a phenomenal, phenomenal chapter. It actually, the context begins in chapter 52 and verse 13 and goes through the end of chapter 53, this great Old Testament chapter about the suffering of the Messiah. Called the Gospel, it is the least read chapter in the Old Testament by Jewish people. Forbidden to be read in their synagogues because it so clearly identifies Jesus Christ as their Messiah. That they have set it aside out of their Old Testament and won't refer to it. It is an astounding chapter. I want you to catch just a couple of things from this chapter. You see in your worksheet, I meant to mention to you at the beginning that, that we had sent out the worksheet for you so that you would have that for the service this morning. But um, nonetheless, the, there are four statements from Isaiah 52 and 53 that Jesus Christ said, this is written about me. This has to come about in my life. And this is the reason why everything's going to change in your life tomorrow, Jesus said to the apostles. Well, how is Jesus portrayed in this uh, amazing chapter in Isaiah? 
Well, I want you to notice, first of all, he's identified as a disfigured, scarred, and rejected victor. Victorious, yes, but disfigured, scarred, and rejected. It all begins in chapter 52 and verse 13, where God the Father is speaking about Jesus. He calls Jesus my servant. And God the Father says, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. What he does, he's going to do it just right. He's going to do exactly what needs to be done. And it's going to accomplish exactly what the purpose for that has been. He will deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Almost looks like three synonyms. Exalted, extolled, and be very high. Some have likened it to the resurrection, the ascension, and the enthronement back to the throne of God that he occupied before he became human. Jesus is victorious in what he does on Calvary. Jesus Christ will be exalted, he will be extolled, and he will take his position that he occupied throughout eternity past very high. He is a victor. But notice, verse 14 says, many were astonished at thee. They were astonished. They were confused. He doesn't look like a victor. He doesn't look like he's exalted. What did they see? Verse 14 says, His visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. He didn't look human after what they did to him on the day of his crucifixion. The beating that he incurred, the ripping out of his beard, the buffeting of his face, the, the ripping out of his, of his head, the, the planting of the crown of thorns, uh, the, 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 the lashing, the scourging that ripped his, the flesh off his back and, and uh, uh, left his ribcage exposed, the, the wrapping around of those thongs around his body and ripping his flesh. The Bible says he doesn't look human anymore. His face is so distorted. I don't even recognize. Who is that? I've seen Jesus before. Certainly that couldn't be Jesus, could it? And his visage was so marred. He was so physically emaciated. What they did to him that day left him not even resembling a human. And those who heard he's a victor, Oh, no. They were astonished. He is portrayed as a disfigured, scarred, rejected, yet victorious one. Not only is he portrayed as that, and by the way, the next verse, or verse number one of chapter 53, God says, who's going to believe it? Who, who hath believed our report? Who's going to believe that this, uh, this scarred, mutilated, uh, 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 disfigured one is the Messiah, eternal God in human flesh, the victor? Who's going to believe our report? To whom will the arm of the Lord be revealed? The arm of the Lord is, is, uh, is, is a reference that speaks of strength. We speak of the, the arm as being a, a, a strength, you know, of our body and, and what we do and what we accomplish. And the arm of the Lord speaks of the strength of Almighty God. Who's going to believe that Jesus Christ is the arm of the Lord, the victorious conqueror? Now they're astonished. In verse number 4 to verse number 6 of Isaiah 53, he's portrayed as the suffering, sacrificed, substitute. The suffering, sacrificed, substitute. Verse 4 says, surely. By the way, let me back up just for a second. In, in verse number 2 and 3, we know why they rejected and won't believe the report. That, that generation of, of Israelites that were there in Israel at the time, that they, they said he... he had no, no impressive 
background and heredity. Verse 2 says he, 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 grows, he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He's like a sucker branch coming up off from a fruit tree, a root that comes up out of dry ground. No one's going to cut those off. No one's going to cultivate them. He, he has no background, no lineage. He came from Nazareth. What good thing ever came out of Nazareth? He, he has no background that they recognize. They saw him as someone that was unimpressive. Verse 2 says, as he hath no form nor comeliness, and when they shall see him, there's no beauty that we should behold him. They said he's, he's not particularly handsome, he's not good looking, uh, there's nothing in him as a man that, that we would say that he could be the Messiah. Verse 3 says, as a result of that, he's despised and rejected. We just, we just don't think anything about him, and we rejected him as our Messiah. He said in verse number 3, he's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. This is, the, this is the description, the overall description of the personality and character of Jesus Christ. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Never does the Bible record that Jesus laughed. But the Bible does record that he wept. He was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. I know that doesn't fit the picture that Jesus Christ is portrayed of in the, the Chosen series where Jesus Christ laughs and jokes. And that, that's that's uh, an interesting imposing of a personality on Jesus Christ that's not found in the Bible. And it's intriguing and interesting to think of Jesus in his humanity. But the Bible in his humanity says the people around him said he's just a man. He's always sorrowful. He's, there's always grief that surrounds him. And we just don't think he's worth following. We don't think anything of him. And so we reject him. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And so that generation of Jewish people, their final conclusion was, he's not important, he doesn't have a great heritage, he doesn't look anything that's great, uh, he's always sorrowful and grief surrounds him, and so we just rejected him and did not esteem him highly. That was what was behind Israel's view of Jesus Christ. And then when he was crucified, oh, they were so astonished. He could not be their Messiah. And in verse number four, the Bible says, surely, and this, this is amazing, the, the tenses of the, of the verbs and the terminology uh, is, is a reflection back on what Jesus Christ did. This is Israel in her redeemed state at the end of the tribulation period. This is Israel who saw Jesus Christ come back. The Bible tells us in Revelation 1, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. They also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. In the, in the end of time, in the end of the tribulation period, when Jesus Christ comes back in his glory, and that generation of Jews see him, they're going to realize that Jesus was their Messiah. He really was the one that had come to save them. And this is their testimony that they will say at that time. They will say, as a redeemed people, in verse number 4, Surely, He hath borne our sorrows. He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet, we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We rejected Him. We said He's an evil man, and He's getting what He deserves, and He's smitten by God. Oh, yes, that's right. He was smitten by God, but not for the reason that they thought. Not because that's what he deserved. All of a sudden they realize that he was smitten of God because he had taken their place. And Jesus bore our sorrows. Jesus bore our griefs. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. 
All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, Jehovah laid on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ is portrayed in this amazing chapter as the suffering sacrifice substitute who died in their place. That's who he really was. And when they realize that, they're going to wail because of him. They're going to realize that he is our Messiah. Why is it that the world's going to turn in their attitude toward the apostles? Jesus said, it's because what was written has to come true. And what was written is Isaiah 53. In verses 7 to 9, he was portrayed as the obedient, submissive substitute in their place. He was obedient to what God had laid out before him. He's prayed in the Garden of Eden, if there's any other way, let this cut pass. But not my will, but thine be done. He obeyed, he submitted to what God had for him. Verse number 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He didn't complain. He didn't rebel. He didn't say, you have no right to do this to me. He didn't say, you guys are wrong. He was obedient and submissive to be the substitute for every sinner's sin. And then at the end of this amazing chapter in Isaiah, verse 10 says, yet it pleased the Lord... Jehovah God, it pleased Jehovah God to bruise him. It pleased God the Father to bruise Jesus Christ? Yes, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put, he, God the Father, put him, Jesus, to grief. It wasn't the Roman soldiers, it was God who was pleased to put Jesus Christ to grief. And when thou shalt make, when God makes his soul an offering for sin. That's why he died. He was the Lamb of God offered up as the suffering substitute, sacrificed for the sin of mankind. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He'll see the people who get saved because of that. He shall prolong his days. He's going to be resurrected and live on to see the result. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in His hand. People will be saved from every tribe and nation and tongue around the entire world. And Jesus will see the, the prospering of what He did. He shall see the travail of His soul and be satisfied. God will see the suffering of Jesus Christ and be satisfied that the atonement, that the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made is acceptable to God to pay for the sins of every person who believes on Him. By His knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for He shall bear their iniquities. God said that Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary was burying the iniquities of the very people that were hammering the nails into place or the very Israelite people who cried out, crucify him, crucify him, release unto us Barabbas. Jesus Christ bore their iniquities and God was satisfied with what Jesus Christ bore. And so... God says, therefore, will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And here it comes. Are you listening? And he was numbered with the transgressors. That's the statement Jesus quoted. Identifying himself to be the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. Stating categorically that, that this passage of Scripture in Isaiah was written about Jesus Christ in His eternal glory and in His suffering in humanity and His victory as a result of that suffering. He would be exalted. He would be extolled. He would be very high as the victor through what He suffered on the day 
of his crucifixion. Because he poured out his soul into death and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bore, he bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus Christ is the exalted, sovereign substitute paying the price for man's sin. And he's exalted because of Calvary. He's extolled because of Calvary. He is made very high because of Calvary. And God the Father is pleased with the sacrifice that has been made to atone for the sins of those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He was numbered with the transgressors. You see, He became you. He became you. He He took took your sin upon his back. back. He He tasted your judgment. God the Father poured out his anger for your sin. He poured it out on Jesus Christ. He was numbered with you. He took your place. Why is everything going to change tomorrow? Because Israel will make the determination that Jesus was not who he claimed to be. They will turn him over to the Romans to execute him. And he will then, Jesus will then become a transgressor. As Jesus suffers and bears the weight of the sin of every person upon his back. And Jesus Christ willingly takes the sin debt of every person. And suffers the judgment of God for that sin. Israel will not believe God's report recorded in Isaiah 53. So Jesus will be hated by that generation of Jewish people. And those who identify with Jesus Christ will be hated. That's what John's Gospel records in a fuller presentation of this teaching that Jesus gave in the upper room. Jesus Christ tied himself to Isaiah 53 as the fulfillment of this momentous declaration. And that declaration was written 700 years before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem's manger. And yet Jesus Christ attached himself to that. Now at such a climactic moment as this, when Jesus Christ just identified himself as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 to the apostles in the upper room, at such a climactic moment like this, what will the apostles say? Our text in verse number 38 records that the disciples said, We have two swords. What? What? What is that all about? We have two swords. Don't you get it? Don't you understand what Jesus Christ has just declared? You've heard Isaiah 53 read in your homes and in your synagogues as A child growing up. You know your Old Testament. When Jesus Christ quoted the end of Isaiah 53 and said, That was written about me. And that is yet to be fulfilled in me. And your response is, We have two swords? Jesus said, It is enough. What did Jesus Christ mean by that? It is enough. Well, some say, he was saying, of the two swords, that's, that's enough swords. You don't anymore. Just forget it. Some believe that he was referring to their comment, the subject of their content. That they're fixated on swords. And Jesus said, that's enough foolish talk. Enough of that. Whichever might be true as to what this phrase refers to, whether the Swords or just a comment about swords? One thing is clear. The apostles didn't get it. They did not understand. They did not grasp the gravity of what Jesus Christ was saying. This is not about swords and an armed resistance against Rome. This is about mental preparation for persecution that's going to come upon you starting in the middle of the night tonight. Everything's going to change. The welcome reception you used to get, you're not going to get anymore. Are you mentally prepared 
Jesus is trying to get them mentally prepared for what's going to happen in Gethsemane. They're going to run. Peter's going to die him. And Jesus is trying to get them mentally prepared for what's about to happen. They're no longer going to be accepted by a Christ-rejecting world. Jesus also said, as I read from John's Gospel a few moments ago, they'll put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever kills you, kills you will think they're doing God a service. Why? Because Jesus' execution will be preached as the substitution for you. You understand how offensive it is to tell a person, you are so bad, you deserve to go to hell. And if you want to see how bad you really are, look at what God the Father did to Jesus when Jesus took your place. I'm not that bad. I mean, I mean, I don't deserve to go. I'm not perfect. I don't deserve to go to hell. I, I'm not. What they did to Jesus, the day they crucified, the, the scourging, the beating, the ripping, the, the, the crown of thorns, the nailing to a cross. Surely I don't deserve that. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Jesus took your place. He became your sin. And God punished Jesus as if it were you that was there that day. That is offensive because it declares the depth of your sin. It declares how bad you really are. That Jesus became you as a transgressor against God. This will be met with opposition. This is going to change things. How dare you insinuate that I deserve hell? How dare you insinuate that I deserve the treatment that Jesus got? But it's true. That's what Isaiah 53 teaches. That's what the New Testament teaches. The immoral person deserves God's eternal judgment. But so does the proud religious leader deserve God's judgment. So does the self-righteous who thinks he's, you know, pretty good. He also deserves God's judgment. Because the Bible declares, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You have failed to meet God's standard for goodness. And that's why the Bible declares there's none good, no, not one. Your life proves that you deserve the eternal judgment of God. You find that offensive? Join the crowd. The world thinks that's offensive. But it's true. And when the Bible is preached in its clarity... And when Jesus Christ is preached and who he was and what he did in its clarity, it results in the realization, I am a sinner on my way to hell. Why would God do that to Jesus? Why would Jesus go to the cross and suffer your sin debt? There's only one answer to that. Pastor Ryan sang about it a few moments ago. The answer is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth on Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the only reason the cross makes sense is when you think about how much God loves His creation, His wayward creation. His proud creation, His immoral creation. Whoever you are, God loves you. And He loves you so much that He planned a way to save you from you, to save you from your sin, to save you from your eternal hell. He planned it before He spoke the universe into place. And created Adam and Eve. 
He wrote about it in the Old Testament. And the night of Jesus' arrest, Jesus said, all that was about me. I'm the one numbered with you transgressors. I will pay your sin debt. And then the gospel message went out. For those who believe in Jesus Christ, trust him and what he did on Calvary as the sufficient, satisfying atonement for my sin. The Bible says, for whosoever shall call out on the name of the Lord shall be saved, rescued, delivered, saved from my sin. Because God loves me so much. However, the one who rejects, by the way, the one who receives that message isn't antagonistic against the deliverer of the message. Jesus is mentally preparing the deliverers, the Christians who will go out and tell the story. They're going to be abused. They're going to be hated. Some of them are going to be killed. Jesus is mentally preparing them for the opposition they're going to face. The message is offensive. But when a person who hears the message breaks under the weight of their own sin and cries out to God to save them, they're not angry at the one who delivered the message. The Bible calls the message deliverer a person with beautiful feet. Those feet that brought the gospel of peace to me. And there will be no opposition from the ones who receive the message. They will thank the messenger. The opposition comes from those who reject the message. Who don't believe in Jesus Christ. Who won't acknowledge their own rebellion and sin. Those are the ones who persecute the deliverer of the message. It's happening all over the world today. Christian people are being executed in different parts of the world. Persecution is at a high. Martyrdoms and executions. Why? Because people deliver the good news that Jesus Christ took your place and suffered for you so that you could have the opportunity to be saved. It's the ones who reject the message that persecute the deliverers of the message. And this is not a negative message. Jesus Christ did not teach this in a negative sense. He was teaching it to prepare these apostles for what they were going to face. Are you a believer in Christ? Are you mentally prepared for opposition? I mean, America's changing. Christians are hated today more so than any time in American history. Those who deliver the gospel in its purest form are ridiculed and mocked, hated by some. Are you ready for that? Are you mentally prepared for the change that has occurred in America as a great swath of American people mock and ridicule and hate Christianity? Are you ready for the persecution? That's what Jesus Christ's message to the apostles was all about, to get them ready for what's to come. But if you're listening to this today, and you're not a believer in Christ, and, and maybe this is offensive to you, maybe you've taken offense at what the Word of God has said to you today, I want you to understand that it's not delivered with any animosity or any spirit of wanting to be offensive. It's delivered with a passion of love. It was delivered by Jesus Christ and God the Father with a passion of love, for God so loved the world. And we at Community Baptist Church love you and want to bring to you the truth of the gospel. And when you see Jesus Christ being crucified and understand the love that put him there and the love that he is expressing to you as he takes your sin and pays your debt, oh, dear friend, if that becomes real to you in your heart, and you feel judged by God, and you feel miserable over your sinful condition, and you realize that this is true, and you're on your way to hell for eternity, and that breaks your heart, the Bible says, 
for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You can be saved right now, wherever you are as you've been watching and listening. If you are under the conviction of the Spirit of God and realize that you're lost and you desperately need God in your life, would you simply call out? He invited you. He said, come now. Let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, deep, profound, multiplied, they shall be as white as snow. Would you call out to God? Would you invite Jesus Christ to come into your life? Would you put your trust in Him? He certainly loves you today.